the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're at session 27 in our series, Oh, That Verse Means That. It's getting a little scary that there's this many misunderstood or misapplied scripture verses. Well, we've devoted these sessions to scrutinizing a bunch of popular Bible verses we believed meant one thing, but are discovering they mean something different, aren't we? Today's session is immorality in the church. No big deal. And I'll attempt to clarify a somewhat puzzling text, 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, where Paul says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. If you missed any sessions, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search the menu for local program podcasts. Now, friends, right at the outset, I must reinforce a statement I've shared. The Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, we pastors, teachers, and preachers, as well as Christians in general, make even force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, I still say, shame on us. And I must admit, friends, today's text stands out as one we've manipulated or jockeyed around to tell our story and not the Bible's story. Because of our proneness to favor our own theological bias or personal point of view. And friends, right at the outset, I've got to drive home another point I've made. In Second Peter, we're told the Holy Spirit is the author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, if you will. So shouldn't the Holy Spirit be respected as we read our Bibles? Doesn't God's Word deserve greater respect, even if it means wrestling with a text? 
do we cavalierly or authoritatively just blurt out what we think a verse means? Well, friends, to properly examine the two verses I mentioned, we'll need to look at the broader context, which begins in the second half of chapter 4. So listen carefully as I read 1 Corinthians 4.14 through 5.13. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he'll remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant or puffed up, prideful, as though I were not coming to you. But I'll come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you desire, that I come to you with a rod, that being a rod of discipline, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, namely that someone has his father's wife, in other words, stepmother. Have you become arrogant, and have you not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from or taken out of your midst? For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that your may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let's celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter, a letter we don't have, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of the world, or with the greedy and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you'd have to leave the world. But now I've written to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he's a sexually immoral person, a greedy person, an idolater, or verbally abusive, habitually drunk, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God will judge. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 17. Now, friends, before we can even begin piecing together what Paul has said, we must once again put on our detective's cap, pull out our pocket magnifying glass, and strap on our first century sandals, because without these, we'll definitely arrive at some quirky conclusions, ones that by default reveal our personal point of view or our biased theological view. 
So, friends, like Bereans, let's carefully investigate several contexts and leave no stun unturned, like the spiritual context, the legal context, the Jewish religious context, the pagan religious context, and the Old Testament root of Paul's admonition. And speaking of admonition, let's start with the spiritual context, because we 21st century Christians don't like the idea of being admonished, especially since the original Greek word means to warn, rebuke, reprimand firmly, even scold. Oh no, not that! Ephesians 5.21 tells us that we're to subject ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul wrote Timothy so he'd know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells him the purpose and usefulness of Scripture to teach or instruct, to rebuke or reprove, and correct and train his flock in righteousness so they may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, in over 30 years of pastoral ministry, witnessing this is a rarity. Shame on us as Christ's body. I attempted this several times and was resisted and criticized. I've often taught that as members of Christ's body, we must voluntarily be willing to live in accountable relationships with one another willing to be corrected, confronted if we're in error, or need to set things right if we're doing wrong. These passages and others, like Colossians 3.16, clearly show we're to be willing to be admonished, reproved, and corrected by a brother or sister or our church leaders. After all, friends, we're not Lone Ranger Christians. We're part of a community, but we've lost this sense in our day. Take 1 Timothy 5 about elders, a situation I'll bet you've never seen or experienced in your church, ever. Listen to verses 17 through 21. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Whoa! Friends, I'm guessing your reaction is, but isn't this judging? Aren't we to not judge others? After all, Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. Well, I actually dealt with this text, Matthew 7-1, extensively in part three of this series that aired February 10th called To Judge or Not to Judge. That is the question. I recommend you listen to that podcast and see how we've made the Bible tell our story with that text. Next is the legal contextual setting. In 1 Corinthians 5.3, Paul begins his intervention with first century legalese. We miss this in our English translations. As the founder of the Corinthian church, though not physically present, Paul's earned the right and has the authority to call the Corinthian community together to initiate a communal action. In fact, in chapter 5, Paul employs the language of a trial with at least 10 legal idioms echoing the language from secular courts. 
Paul advised the Corinthian assembly to judge the offender in the name of the Lord Jesus, since he had already rendered his verdict as though he were present. So there's unity here. Paul's legal perspective on this case before them all supports the church body having the authority of Jesus to render their verdict on the deliberately sinning member. And this authority would include expelling him from their community. Now keep in mind, friends, that the Christian use of this communal power was not just punitive, but remedial. In other words, to promote restoration. The goal of all church discipline is to facilitate repentance and restoration in the spirit of Galatians 6.1, humbly and gently. And these qualities do not contradict being firm and resolute in our actions. Because, friends, our ultimate aim here is restoring the soul of a brother or sister in our local church community. And I must add here, in the midst of Paul's judicial action, we can't brush off the initial sad condition of the Corinthians' apathy. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul uses arrogant three times, and boastful as well, plus their need to be admonished for their apathy, and particularly a distinctive sin for which the pagans had disdain. In the pagan Roman legal system, incest was universally abhorred. Roman legal punishment was banishment to an island, maybe even loss of property and social status. Now, to be fair, friends, there's two additional spiritual ingredients of which we must be aware. The first is Corinth itself. Corinth straddled a natural isthmus between two waterways, its ports on each side busting with seagoing traders. Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, was Corinth's patron female deity. Rampant promiscuity shaped the fabric of the citizenry and travels. This influence was so pervasive and deep, it even held its grip on new converts to Christianity. So Paul's letter urged and advocated sexual purity in a city of blatantly low moral standards. The sin in the Corinthian church even made the pagans blush. Well, friends, the second spiritual ingredient was the influence of the pagan Greek mystery religions, particularly Gnosticism. Time constrains me from giving more details here, so do an internet search for Gnosticism spelled with a G. The ingredients impacting the church, however, were the philosophically and religiously rooted belief that the material world was evil, but spirit was good. The Corinthian Christians evidently had not yet jettisoned the notion that they could shamelessly sin with their material bodies and yet keep their spirits pure. This way they could tolerate incest and wink at the sinning member. Sadly, they lived with a false view of Christian liberty. Now remember, friends, church discipline is not a bunch of pious policemen out to catch spiritual criminals. Rather, church discipline is initiated by broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. When a brother or sister is embroiled in deliberate and continual sinful behavior, it's time the family mourns and works together as a community to challenge and restore their fallen member. This is why Paul remarked in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 that they had become arrogant and hadn't mourned their spiritually perverse condition. 
Therefore, a decidedly unrepentant believer should be removed and temporarily ostracized from the community to urge them to repent. Remember, it was a redemptive move, an action laid out in the Hebrew Scriptures, symbolized in Exodus 12, where Jewish families were required to take out all leaven in their house prior to Passover, as well as stipulated by the law in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22. In the New Testament, leaven also symbolized sin. Jesus told his disciples to watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16. Paul utilizes this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 5 with the Passover imagery and the requirement of removing all leaven from Jewish homes. Leaven, portraying sin, is small yet powerful. It works secretly. It puffs up the dough. It spreads. Paul pictured the sinning brother as a piece of leaven, defiling the entire loaf of bread, the congregation. Today we might liken sin to cancer in the human body. It starts small and often unnoticed, but grows out of control. Often drastic surgery is needed to remove the diseased tissue. So, friends, in a spiritual body, spiritual surgery may be required to remove the spiritual cancer from that community. Each local church must purge itself of old leaven. The old life behaviors rebellious believers are sometimes unwilling to renounce. Well, friends, I'm happy to say the erring brother in 1 Corinthians 5 repented and was restored, as 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says. A good rule of thumb might be, we may not be able to avoid contact with sinners, but we must avoid contamination by sinners. After all, Paul uses some strong expressions here. You haven't mourned yet? Remove this one from your midst twice. Clean out the old leaven. Do not associate with this one. Do not even eat with this person. Friends, it's becoming clear that the Corinthian Christians had developed a twisted view of grace. This resulted in them cavalierly and arrogantly tolerating sexual immorality and coddling the offending brother. Personally, I believe their warped understanding that grace was limitless led them to believe that freedom in Christ was also limitless. At the heart of this thinking was the prevailing pagan religious influence of Gnosticism, as mentioned earlier. Aside from this possibility, our text under scrutiny doesn't elaborate on just why the congregation coddled this erring brother and didn't confront him. Some scholars suggest the influence of two other cultural conventions were at work in the first century, one being that the incentive on the part of the sinning brother to maintain the relationship may have been the hope of retaining the woman's marriage dowry to her family if the husband had died, which that is not supplied in the text for us. He may have hoped to have children, which would strengthen his claim for retaining the dowry within the present family. The other being that this sinning brother may have been a member in high standing in the community or empire, even a Roman citizen. It's even possible he may have been the patron of the Corinthian church. In the Greco-Roman world, patron-client relationships were an important mechanism of control within Roman society. Church members may have felt uneasy or it inappropriate to question the sexual morals of a high-standing individual. Well, friends, I'm hoping you'll respond to these possibilities the way I'm going to respond. The bottom line is, 
What saith the scriptures, isn't it? Christianity's influence and impact on any society remolds and reshapes people, families, neighborhoods, communities, whole countries even. So if these first century cultural conventions did play a part, the believers at Corinth, along with their leaders, should have mustered the spiritual strength and power to give first place to what would honor Jesus, their Messiah and Lord. Out of love and allegiance to him, they should have been blazing new trails in spite of the consequences. Believe me, friends, I'm not saying this would have been easy. We Christians in the 21st century face similar situations in principle, don't we? Friends, it's interesting that the issue of sexual immorality became a line item in the letter to early pagan converts. The church's first response was during the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Read that chapter for yourself. The gist is some Jewish converts who clung to their legalistic views of salvation demanded that pagan converts be circumcised according to the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to hammer this out. Finally, James's closing advice is in Acts fifteen twenty-three through 29 But here are the final words. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you'll do well. Well, friends, this entire backstory has been needful just to help us understand and interpret one sentence, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, which is really the second half of the sentence begun in verse 4. This single sentence is probably one of the most difficult sentences to unpack, but I believe there are enough clues to steer us in the right direction and steer us clear of fanciful interpretations or biased theological conclusions. This time we'll call on the typical practice of the original apostles as they evangelized the empire, and the city of Corinth is a perfect model. The common missionary strategy of the apostles was to plant a church in one city in a region, preferably a port city, so the gospel could be preached and converts would travel to and fro and bring the good news to wherever they traded. Friends, we've got to remember that the Roman Empire was pagan territory. The gospel was birthed in the most unfriendly and hostile spiritual environment. In fact, pagan converts to Christianity were called atheists because they no longer believed in the gods of their cities. So for first century Christians, the world outside the church environment was the world operated and controlled by Satan. Paul calls him the God of this world. John instructs his audience to not love the world, nor the things in the world, because this material world is passing away along with its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, friends, it becomes entirely appropriate for Paul to reach the verdict to turn the sinning brother over to Satan. In other words, over to the non-Christian hostile environment of the prevailing Roman Empire. Being ostracized or expelled from his Christian fellowship meant being cast out from under the umbrella of grace and the support of the Christian community to which he was a part. Without the spiritual support of this community, he would be left alone with his sin and the free influence of Satan. Remember, friends, the aim of this move was restorative and remedial. Its goal was to bring about repentance and godly sorrow for his deliberate and unchecked sinful behavior. 
Let me say here, friends, we can't effectively carry this out anymore in the 21st century. With churches on virtually every corner, a sinning person can simply leave one church and go down the street to the next one with no repentance and restoration. Very sad indeed. Now the expression for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord is a bit more challenging because the word flesh in the Greek can refer to our physical body or since it was co-opted by Christians, it can now refer to our sinful state often presented in opposition to the Holy Spirit. This verse has birthed the idea that if we sin enough and displease God, he'll take us out, so to speak, and bring us to heaven early. Friends, this is pure theological bias that God will ultimately bless the deliberately sinning believer with early retirement? See the illogic of this position? Those believing this use Ananias and Sapphira and the sinning Christians in 1 Corinthians 11 abusing the Lord's Supper as support. I don't doubt these believers were being disciplined, but it's ludicrous to say God is bringing them home early because of their ungodly lives. Since we fallen humans are prone to the path of least resistance, we could just choose to live a sinful life and be rewarded by dying and going to heaven early. Seriously? This is totally contrary to chapter 5's lesson, cleaning out the old leaven so that the church would be a new lump, sweeping out the leaven of sin to cleanse and purify the congregation, celebrating the Passover, Jesus, not with the old leaven of wickedness, but with the new leaven of sincerity and truth. Since destruction in this last phrase has the ranges of ruin, doom, undoing, destruction, and death, but the goal of this disciplinary measure was repentance and restoration in this life, my take is that being expelled from the Christian community meant temporarily experiencing the agony and pain of physical, emotional, and spiritual separation with the aid of Satan to motivate this brother to quick repentance for the long haul. So repentance restores him to both God and his worshiping and fellowshipping community. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me with your feedback. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.